This is the Monday, November 6th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to a day when the United States fought its first major overseas conflict, a fight idealized as making the world safe for democracy. Our guide on this journey is Margaret E. Wagner. She's a senior writer-editor in the Library of Congress Publishing Office, and she brings us America and the Great War, a Library of Congress illustrated history. And boy, is it ever illustrated. I get a ton of books, as you can probably imagine, and things can get a little cluttered on my desk. But this book refused to be shuffled off into a box, drawer, or closet. Its cover was just too vivid, and the story is just too compelling. It's almost an art history museum sitting on your coffee table, offering up over 250 images along with four color illustrations many never seen before. Margaret Wagner applied the talent she put into her previous books. They are The Library of Congress Illustrated Timeline of the Civil War and The American Civil War, 365 Days and World War II, 365 Days. She's also the co-author of the Library of Congress Civil War Desk Reference, and the Library of Congress World War II Companion. Okay, now that President Wilson has thrust us into the European conflict against the Central Powers, let's join Margaret E. Wagner for a trip to America and the Great War. Joining me on the line is Margaret E. Wagner, author of America and the Great War, a Library of Congress Illustrated History. Thank you so much for making time to chat about the Great War with the History Author Show. It's my very great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. When we hear those words, that name, the Library of Congress, it conjures images of a massive archive that the bookish Henry Bemis from the iconic Twilight Zone episode, Time Enough at Last, if you remember that one, I'm sure as a mm-hmm. librarian you do, right? <laughs> the glasses break and, oh, it's not fair. There, there was time at last for all of these books that he wanted to read. That's the image that you get, a place that's just voluminous books that 10 lifetimes you couldn't begin to take all the journeys that are hidden in those covers. So I wanted to start by asking you what it was like researching this formative experience in America's life as a world power in that library of libraries where you had so much in the historic record right at your fingertips. It was as research here always is, an epic adventure, awe-inspiring, surprising, 
and time-consuming because there is so much here. And I don't know if everyone realizes that the library just here on Capitol Hill has three enormous buildings, and it holds much more than books. We also have here the Veterans History Project, which collects the memorabilia and the reminiscences of American veterans from World War I through the current time. And that collection, the Veterans History Project alone, has over 100,000 collections, 330-some of them are World War I veteran collections. So it took a number of years, and I came to know, in quotes, a number of people that I hadn't been acquainted with before, American soldiers, American nurses, and volunteers of all shades, and it was one of these great epic adventures that I don't know if people understand that they can have when they come to the library. This is the most open national library on the face of the earth, and anyone over the age of 16 can come here and get a reader's card and have the same sort of adventure as I went through when I was researching this book. It does sound like a magic journey. And you talk about going and getting the card. It reminds me of my sixth grade teacher. And he told us that when he came to New York, he wanted that card for the New York City Library, mm-hmm. the public library. He said, it, I wanted to get it. And I went there and they told me I couldn't get it without proof of residency and whatever uh, he yeah. had to go through at the time. <laughs> and so he said, but when I got it, and he pulled it out of his wallet. He was just so proud of it to have that opportunity. And I think that you being able to work there. If you're somebody who loves books and loves history and loves the people you're meeting, I'm picturing them writing these things down or sharing their stories wherever they shared them. And then they might sit there in a book or have sat there in a book for a hundred years until you come and you're the first person to hear their voice and their thoughts in all that time, in all those eras. And then you offer it up here in America and the Great War because After all, the story of America and the Great War is going to be Americans. It's going to be people that are over there fighting, people that are coming home, people that are home waiting for loved ones. With that huge volume, that endless resource there, that Henry Bemis-sized pile of books, how do you you know when to say, okay, the book is ready? What was the little voice that stopped you from being one of these – Folks who just says, well, I'm researching a book and they just, and they just, they'll tell you 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They're, they're still trying to put it together. How do you find that moment when it's time to say, okay, you go on the shelf with the others? Well, there are two voices that instruct me when I'm working on something like this. One voice is telling me, keep going, keep going, because there's so many other interesting stories and you want to find all the people, um, and which is, impossible in any lifetime, I think, to tell their stories. And the other is, here is an anniversary that we have here for the 100th anniversary, a four-year anniversary of the war. And we have a sort of deadline, a publishing deadline. So you keep that in mind. And you also keep in mind that you can't tell everything, but what you can do is tell a story that indicates or try to tell a story that indicates how complicated and how moving and how amazing an era is. And you then create an outline and figure out 
the kinds of threads you are going to weave together in the book and then try and stick to that outline. And it's always a fight between these these two, I want to know more, I want to know more, that voice, and the we have to frame a story, a series of stories, a mosaic of stories, and tell it and tell it in a way and in a timely fashion. Get that book published. Get it out there when people are paying attention and want to know more about this era. And we hope a lot of people do want to know more about this era, not just because of this book, but because of the anniversary and because it is such a very important era in the history of the world, but also in the history of this country. And I think a lot of people will be surprised at the kind of impact the First World War had on the United States even before we became a combatant right from the get-go and how much of an impact the United States had on the conflict right from the beginning. You spoke there about how the war changes America. I mean, this is so true. And also you spoke about the idea of the library being a living resource to go to. So if people do go pick up America and the Great War and want to learn more, they can still go after they read the book and they can find the places that you have footnoted, that you have tapped as resources to put the book together. And then they can take their own World War One journey. They can maybe find the Doughboys and their family tree if they have any and find out where they served. Many times because the death toll is so high, and not just from the fighting, but you have the flu pandemic, mm -hmm. which kills more people than the war after it's over. And because of the Great Depression, because World War II comes along, mm -hmm. the Cold War, people just had other things to do by then if they did survive. So many things eclipsed it. And I like that idea that you can pick up this beautiful book and look at it and then say, hmm. I want to find out more about this one picture. If you're like myself, uh, I've mentioned before that the Camp Merritt monument to the camp for the Great War that was in Creskill, New Jersey, where I went to high school and, and lived those years of my life. I can go look in this book, see something from Camp Merritt. I could see the flag, say, at the National World War I Museum in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And then I can say, I want to go to the Library of Congress and research more of it, find out more about what was going on in that camp at the time. I think that's a great tie for you. Most authors don't have that. You have that great library. You could throw its doors open to your readers and say, if you like the book, here, have the unedited version. And also allow me to put in a plug for the appendix at the back of the book. And there is a section there that says the World War One era in the collections of the Library of Congress. And there's a short blurb from every division that holds World War One era materials. And within that blurb, it tells the strength of every division. The library has about 21 different reading rooms. And everyone that holds materials on America and the Great War is listed there. And there are website URLs, and it just tells the strength. So you can visit the library online or come here and with that guide in mind. And by the way, right now the library also has a major exhibition on the First World War called Echoes of the Great War. Um, and that's in our Thomas Jefferson building. So there's a lot 
World War One era here at the library to see and to enjoy. And also, we do have a great number of resources. The library is huge. We have now many items that are digitized and they're online. I think the latest statistic is the 165 million. But that still leaves over 100 million items that are not digitized and are not available. But they could be available, except for the most fragile, they would be available to people who came and could get a reader's card and could do some research here for themselves. And you don't have to be intimidated to go there. It doesn't oh, sound no. like I realized that to myself. I said, I bet if I went there, I'm probably going to get shushed a lot. <laughs> don't go to the Library of Congress. <laughs> I was again, that hey, you have that little we're kid a with it group. <laughs> no, we try not to intimidate. Actually, we teach every staff member here teaches me a lot when I go to the different divisions. I sometimes say it's like going to a great school with a lot of people who just love their collections. I mean, they're very serious about protecting the collections because our collections belong to all the American people and we want to keep them safe for all the American people. But you talk to the curators here and the reference librarians and they will just fall all over themselves to help you with what you are looking for and to give you guidance. And sometimes they will tell you, all sorts of very interesting stories about the things at which you're looking. I have a great time doing research here. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. And this is great to hear somebody who's so electrified by the history, mm. by their research. And the result is this great book, America and the Great War, that you go on Amazon if you're listening and want to check it out and see if I'm telling the truth here about this book. If it's as great as I say, <laughs> it has many praiseful quotes and several use words like overlooked and forgotten, meaning that this is new stuff. This is stuff you probably didn't learn when you were taking high school in history or even in college unless you set out to learn it, unless you set out to go to someplace like the Library of Congress and find out, hey, was there some kind of World War I area in my town? Was there a base? Was there a soldier that's uh, maybe an obelisk that mm. has a bush that overgrew it in town that you never knew was there? In the town of Englewood, New Jersey, they have an obelisk in one of their traffic circles. It's smaller than the one in Kreska for Camp Merritt. But when I was doing my reading, as as you do if you're a history buff in some obscure story of the town from way back when, they said when they were discussing where to put that monument, they talked about putting it off in the park in a little place. And somebody had the foresight to say no, because if we put it off there in the park, we may think that's a great spot today and people will go look at it when it's in living memory, when you're remembering your brother or your father or somebody that died, your, say all of your sisters wiped out in a pandemic, which did happen. One soldier from the Great War lost his wife and four or five daughters, I believe, to the pandemic. Mm. But this man said when – it comes to be 20, 25 years. When it's your great uncle, maybe, when it's your great aunt that died, when it's some cousin you never met, they'll forget the Great War. It's just human nature. So let's put it right in the middle of the traffic circle. So every time someone drives around it, they will see it and they'll remember what was here. And I think that that's the great thing here about America and the Great War is the Great War itself may get short shrift, but this book is so compelling and so visually pleasing that it refuses to be forgotten. You'll want to leave it out on your on your bookshelf because it just looks great. It's very alluring. It makes you want to pick it up and page through it. And it's too bad that the Great War is looked at now with hindsight and we say, 
well, there wasn't really a resolution. Well, I'll check in again in World War II when there's a more clear-cut victory. There's a clear-cut reason why the fighting starts. Hitler invades Poland. It starts because Japan bombs Pearl Harbor, that kind of thing. So I wanted to ask, as you're walking around there with literally every piece of history <laughs> in America at your fingertips, <laughs> what inspired you to compile this book to remind people of what the nation was like as the Doughboys went off to war? Why not another topic since you have everything there almost. And I have written on other topics, but in this case, there were two things, and it's a happy confluence of personal inspiration and the inspiration of the 100th commemoration of this very important war, this very important era, actually. Aware that this anniversary was coming up and we are the nation's memory here at the Library of Congress. That's what some people call us, America's memory. And we have all this fantastic material. So as part of the library's commemoration, we decided in this office, and I am the bug about World War I here in this office, so um, I wrote a proposal to develop this book as a part of the library's commemoration of this very important era. But it's also true that ever since I was a little girl, and I'm not exactly sure why I got started on this interest, this war in particular has fascinated me. And I think it may be when I was a very little girl, I grew up for the first 10 years of my life, we didn't have a television, and I read everything I could get my little hands on, and that included some of my brother's books. So there may have been a book about World War I that got this going, but all my life, that I can remember from when I was a little girl, the First World War was sort of floating around in my consciousness. And as I got older, I took a tour of World War I battlefields, and I read more about the war, the military history of the war, and was struck by the unprecedented, at that time, carnage, especially on the Western Front, where you know, there was a static warfare for almost three years, and hundreds of thousands of men would attack across no man's land, as it was aptly called, and run into the barbed wire and the mass fire from the opposite army. And the lines wouldn't move. Hundreds of thousands of men lost their lives, lost their limbs lost their sanity in doing this time after time for month-long battles, and nothing budged. And as I grew older, I thought I, I was fascinated by what make, what impelled these men to keep doing this and their officers to keep ordering them to do this and what caused this carnage in the first place. But as I've done research for this book, and as I approached doing research for this book, I became aware of how incredibly important not just the military aspect of the war was to the rest of world history, to the rest of American history, but also the diplomatic, the social aspects, the political aspects of the war. That's what first enmeshed the United States States 
that's what drew us closer and closer to the war. This era, this war, had a huge impact on the future development of the United States as well as the future development of the world. And so my personal interest just was married nicely with with the commemoration that the library was going to have. So that was perfect. That was a perfect happiness. (laughs) And you were able to access this giant library of images. Mm. Many of the 250 that are in America and the Great War have never been published. So even somebody who's read a lot about the Great War, like myself, you can open it up and say, wow, I haven't seen that one before Mm. because you've gone to the library for us, even if we're too far away to make it or we can't go for some reason. So describe for us some of the ones that jumped out at you. You're there with that. I keep thinking of Burgess Meredith, that big (laughs) piles and piles and piles of books on the steps of that library saying he's going to spend a year on this, a year on that topic. So how did these certain ones jump out at you and you had that voice in your head that you spoke about say, yes, this one must go in the book because it has something to show my modern readers that they've never seen before? This is one of the toughest questions that I know you're going to ask me. (laughs) We finally selected, I think I counted them correctly, 287 individual images are in the book. And of those, I have approximately 284 favorites. (laughs) So it's a little difficult to pick out individual ones. And it was also, I worked with a picture editor, Athena Angelos, who is an amazing person and very skilled at picture research. And we would have these long discussions about the choice of images. But to pick a few that make different points, and again, there are many different threads that are woven through this book. I'll start by talking about one that's at the very beginning of chapter one, and it was originally published, but it was published a hundred years ago, and I've never seen it since. And it's a cartoon from a New York newspaper, and there's a young boy sitting on the stoop, and he's got his baseball bat and a mitt sitting right next to him, and his dog is next to him, and he's holding up a newspaper, and you can read the headlines. Many teachers stranded in Europe. Opening of school may be delayed. And he's looking at the reader and he's saying, gee, to hear everybody talk, you'd think this here war was a bad thing. And this is kind of a funny and puckish little cartoon, but what it does demonstrate to me is that the war had a huge impact right from the very first day There were approximately 130, 140,000 Americans in Europe when the war started. And the war came about, it seemed to come on very quickly. Banks were shut. Boats couldn't sail. These people were stranded. So one of my favorite stories at the beginning of the book is this massive rescue operation that the United States government, with government funds and private funds loaned by banks, mounted in August, September, October of 1914 to go and get and bring and make arrangements with 
all the different belligerent countries to bring all those people safely home. It was a very successful enterprise, and the money that was loaned to all these people so that they could get boats, boat tickets back to the United States, almost every dime of that was paid back. So that cartoon just reminds me, and I hope would tell people that there were many impacts, many ways in which the war had an impact on the American people. There was not only the Americans stranded in Europe, but at that time, income tax had just been passed. The amendment to the Constitution that instituted an income tax had just been ratified. And so most of the government funding for the United States came from tariffs on on our international trade. That stopped. And so the country was immediately, it was already in a recession. It was immediately plunged into a deeper recession. The stock market shut down for a variety of reasons and did not open up for months, actually. So there was an immediate impact on the war. So that is all of that is sort of what I see when I look at that cartoon. And further on in the book, there are two side-by-side illustrations, and they're part of a collection here at the library that most people have not seen or explored, actually. And it's, I believe we're beginning to digitize it now, but it had not been digitized when we, we were looking at it images. These two images are part of a large collection of about 8,400 items. One of the things that brought England into the war, for example, was the invasion of neutral Belgium by the Germans. They were going to defeat France, and in order to do that quickly, they had to go through neutral Belgium. And that 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 upset many people in neutral countries, including the United States, and the way in which the Germans behaved also upset a number of people. So the the Belgian people had to import about 60 or 70 percent of their food, and suddenly they were in danger of starving. They were in, there were many people that had been killed during the invasion. And so immediately the United States was a leader in in sending a massive, unprecedented amount of aid over to Belgium. There was a, a, a organization headed by Herbert Hoover, who would later become, of course, president of the United States, called Commission for Relief in Belgium. And tons and tons and tons of American aid went over to Belgium. Food, but also clothing and medicine. And So in 1915, the students in Belgium and their teachers, they all sat down, many of them, and wrote thousands of letters of gratitude addressed to the President of the United States and to the American people saying, thank you, thank you for helping us and for continuing to help us. And a lot of these letters had photographs attached or drawings by the students themselves. And so two of them, we chose one that had a photograph and one that has a drawing, obviously, by a young child. And it's a two-part drawing. And one part shows a ship 
leaving the United States, and the other part shows the ship arriving in Belgium to the relief of the Belgians. Those letters are very moving, and they say to me also they're an indication of the aid that started at the very beginning of the war, that continued all the way through the war and wasn't just to Europe. We sent a massive amount of aid to the Middle and to the Near East and to Russia, and that aid also continued after the war when so much of Europe, so much of Russia, so much of the Middle East was devastated. So that's another favorite of mine. Another thing in the more military aspect, there is a page from a notebook by an officer by the name of Major Paul Clark. We have his collection here. And Major Clark was an aide to John Pershing, to General Pershing, who was the head of the American Expeditionary Forces. Now, Major Clark's collection, most of his reports, he was also designated as the liaison to the French High Command, to French General Headquarters. So he was all over the Western Front. And he was over there as the American buildup started, and it was very slow. We, and that's another part of the story, how we raised this huge army. But it was a very slow buildup, and it had not been anywhere near completed by March 1918 when the Germans launched a massive offensive, which pushed the Allied armies back in some places 40 miles, 40 blood-soaked miles. And so Paul Clark was going around, and usually he had typed his reports. He would send reports to General Pershing just about every day. And they were all very military and very well typed. But in this case, he kept a notebook, and his report was handwritten. And it's right after the offensive began, and the, German, and the Germans had pushed back the British and the French so far, and Paris was in danger. And he visited the headquarters um, at one point, and he says in this, this, this small page, is very neat, but you could tell he was writing in a hurry, but he was still neat. He's talking about how the all French officers were, all looked as if they had been hit in the stomach with a baseball bat. And because of all the tension that they were under. And he also describes in the next paragraph how in trying to reach the headquarters, he is passing reams and reams of refugees on the roads. They're clogging the roads. They're making it very difficult for army units to get through. And they're in a state of panic. And it's this on-the-site impression he's trying to convey to General Pershing the attitude of the Allies, what is going on. And now we are reading this a hundred years later, and we can see on this piece of paper what he saw, and you can sort of feel his feelings. And I just, it was so, such an Americanism, the way he described how the French officers looked like they were hit in the stomach with a baseball bat. So that's another favorite. I could keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the book has so much more, so many of these journeys that people can take with you. I wanted to mention the start of chapter one of America and the Great War because you invoke Lincoln's words there and the war came. 
Woodrow Wilson had won re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war. So when he switches here to a footing of fighting, when he decides he's not going to ignore these sinkings anymore, the Lusitania goes down, but that's not as clear-cut as Pearl Harbor. He doesn't go the next day to Congress the way FDR does and demand a declaration of war against Japan. And there's the Zimmerman telegram with the German intrigue offering to restore the land Mexico lost in the Mexican-American War to them if they are willing to get into the war and attack the U.S. All of these things happen, this slow buildup to war. But by the time we get to the actual war being declared, Wilson doesn't lay the groundwork here. He's resisting war. He's won on keeping us out of the war. He's fanned isolationist sentiment, or at least hasn't put it down. So people hold back and they also hold back because, as we see here in America and the Great War, there are a lot of new or first-generation Americans with ties to the belligerent nations. You're talking about all of Europe here that's that's choosing up sides, right? If you're a new Italian immigrant or you're somebody from the Austro-Hungarian Empire or France, you're you're not going to necessarily want to go over there. Or German, you you haven't. This isn't your country yet. You haven't been assimilated. There's a huge chunk of people that have those ties here to the Kaiser, for instance. You know, these are also monarchies where they're still going to be saluting those. That's actually one in three American citizens at the time has a tie there. They're a newer first generation. American. So how does America go about assembling that fighting force needed to go over there? And what is their reaction to the call to the draft? Those are huge questions. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, to go back to And the War Started, the first two chapters of the book, as you know, deal with the period of neutrality when Wilson does try desperately not only to keep us out of the war, but a lot of the American feeling among both immigrants and people who have been established here for a very long time is that America was a special country. It was a it 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 was a specially enlightened country. It was it's the leading democracy, the most powerful neutral country, and America's role would be to try to find a way to bring the warring countries to the conference table to end this war before it got any worse. And it kept getting worse and worse. And when he ran on, and and the war became, of course, affected America more and more as you're talking about the sinking, not only of the Lusitania, but other ships on which Americans were passengers and were either injured or killed when the ships were damaged or sunk. And there was an anger at this, at the encroachment by the central powers led by Germany on Americans. But there was also anger at Great Britain because Great Britain was blockading the central powers, and in blockading the central powers, they were also interfering with American trade. So there was less anger at Britain, admittedly, but there was still this feeling that we should remain neutral. We should guide these countries to the conference table. There's also, when he ran in 1916 on that slogan, and it was not his idea, this He kept us out of war. He was a little uncomfortable, President Wilson was, with that because he knew how tenuous peace had become by then. But that slogan also pertains to another thread that runs through the book that's important to the American military aspect of the World War experience. 
And that is, he kept us out of war was not only the war in Europe, but at that same time, there was a revolution going on in Mexico. And of course, that's right across the border. And so we're deeply affected by this. And at the same time, Americans had great financial investments in Mexico. So it's right next door. Our investments there were being jeopardized. And there was some German espionage going on in this country and in Mexico, trying to keep the United States out of the war by stirring up the Mexican situation. So he kept us out from going to war in both Europe and in Mexico, although we did send in 1916 and early 1917 a punitive expedition into Mexico. And that punitive expedition taught us something militarily, and that taught us that the United States was not at all prepared for any kind of a conflict, for the kind of conflict that was going on in Europe. So right after he ran and won, and even before he gave his second inaugural address, um, the war was heating up, and Germany declared unrestricted submarine warfare. We didn't. We severed diplomatic relations, but again, we didn't go to war. It wasn't until about two months later, two and a half months later, that Congress declared war. But at that time, even though we had watched all of this going on in Europe, even though we were aware of the flaws in our military from our experience in Mexico, we were totally unprepared. There were some plans made, but we had an army at that time, an official United States Army, that was ranked at something like 19th in the world. There were approximately 127,000 officers and men in the United States Army at that time. And we had called, um, the federal government had called up about 200,000 more National Guardsmen because of the situation in Mexico. So they were in uniform and they were patrolling on the southern borders. And you take that and put it up against the 5 million or so men in the German army, the 8 or 9 million in the Russian army, the 2 to 3 million in the French army, and you see what a job we had to do to raise an army to send it not only to defend the United States, but to send it over to Europe. And that was one of the questions at first. Would we actually have to send an army over to Europe? Huge questions, suddenly. Very little time, very little time either to answer the questions or to figure out how to implement the answers. But miraculously and stumbling in many ways, because we had never done this before, we had never sent a large army overseas. Miraculously, we raised an army. The army went from 127,000 and some to 4 million men in a period of 18 to 19 months, 2 million of whom went overseas. This is nothing short of miraculous, and it, again, the book details some of the many, many problems, the many, many mistakes, 
many, many arguments and accusations and counter accusations that went on during this period. But it also shows the amazing responsiveness of the American people. Once this country went to war, there are many stories, many problems about what happened as the Americans went to war. There was a great debate over the institution of the draft, and the book does go into this debate. For a long time, progressives in the United States had felt that in order to inspire people and to bring people together, there should be an obligation for universal military service, universal service for all men in the United States bringing them all together, people of all classes, economic strata, to make them realize the obligations as well as the rights of citizenship. And this sort of transferred over to President Wilson's decision. It's one of the reasons that he felt that everyone should be under obligation. Everyone of certain age group should be under the obligation to serve in the army. And after a huge debate in the United States newspapers and especially in Congress, the draft was passed. And then there was worry how many people would avoid the draft. Would there be draft riots as there were in the Civil War, which had not concluded that long ago? There were still Civil War veterans alive, a couple of them still serving in Congress when we went to war in World War One. Well, the draft was passed, and on registration day, although there were many people the government found and estimated after the war, there were hundreds of thousands of men who avoided the draft, um, and some did not register. But overall, draft registration day was sort of a holiday across the country, and millions of men registered on that first registration day. There were eventually four draft registration days. After the last of those, 24 million American men and immigrants who had taken out their first papers of citizenship. All of them were eligible for the draft. We had this well of 24 million men, which was more than the combined strength of most of the combatants combined. That huge well of potential soldiers was one factor that certainly discouraged Germany and brought about the end of the war, not to mention this parade of Americans, boat after boat after boat, ship after ship after ship, unloading doughboys on the continent. So I think this miraculous and I keep using that word, but I just can't imagine that really how that happened, but it did. Despite all the problems, all the arguments, the pulling together of the American people, immigrants as well as people established for generation, and the enthusiasm, the volunteerism that once the United States got into the war, just just demonstrated for the first time to all the other nations of the world the true capacity for the United States to project its 
power, its economic power it had already established, but to project its military power abroad if there were an instance where this country felt it was needed. Talking about Wilson's prosecution of this war, discuss the impact on civil liberties and free speech that you discuss here in America and the Great War. One of the questions that the American people confronted as they went into war was how much dissent, how much criticism could be allowed at a time of emergency. And this is a subject that comes up repeatedly in the history of every nation, including this nation. But it's more crucial here because we are the leading democracy. And one of our proudest rights is freedom of speech. During the First World War, during the period that we were involved in the war, this was a period that was not only one of astonishing accomplishment and giving and volunteerism and, and all these positive things, but it was also a period of epic repression of dissent. In 1917, Congress passed the Espionage Act, which was quite onerous. It's still on the books, and it dampened freedom of expression in times of emergency in many different ways. And in 1918, this was enhanced by the Sedition Act, which was so awful and so contrary to American rights and to the constitutional rights that it was not extended much past the war. There was vigilantism in the war as well as vigilance. People watched each other. People beat up folks who they felt were not supporting the war enough. People were prosecuted or rumored for things that they said that were we would consider innocuous today. This was in part because this was the kind of conflict, this was an experience that this country had not been through before. There was a little bit of this that went on during the Civil War when emotions, when Americans were fighting Americans. But here we were involved in this massive conflict, one which it looked like just a few months after we got into the war, the German offensive that I had talked about made it look like the Allies might lose. So we had never coped with this before, and we didn't know how to address that question of, how much can you question what's going on and how much can you not? And we're still struggling with that question periodically. We're enjoying a trip back to the United States a hundred years ago with Margaret E. Wagner, author of America and the Great War, a Library of Congress Illustrated History. Publishers Weekly writes that our guest, quote, uses the library's visual and documentary resources to good effect in a work that combines an entertaining coffee table format with an intellectually rewarding text. In his introduction to America and the Great War, David M. Kennedy, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author of Freedom from Fear, calls the book, quote, a uniquely colorful chronicle of this dramatic and convulsive chapter in American and world history. It's an epic tale, and here it is wondrously well told. 
talk about a few of those words there, one of which that I really liked was convulsive. <laughs> when you think about your body convulsing, everything changes. Everything is pushed out of you. All your thoughts are just on this one thing on when, when will I stop, even if it's shivering from being extremely cold. Everything is put on hold and it demands your entire attention. If you're having convulsions, unfortunately, you're, you're not reading a book. You're not watching TV. You're not worried about anything but getting them to stop about what is happening to your body. And mm. that word really jumped out at me there. So much here changes. Things that, as you said, that has have not been seen in American memory. You mentioned the U-boats, for instance. The U-boats bring fighting to the American shores for the first time since the War of 1812. And we know the Civil War. We know that there were some crude submarines, but we didn't have warfare here in the northern United States the way that we do when we have a foreign power coming in fighting. This is not a domestic rebellion. Spain declares war in 1898 and people start really freaking out. They start demanding warships. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was pretty much running the War Department as Assistant Secretary of the Navy because the real secretary took off oftentimes. And he's also active here in America and the Great War. We talk a lot about those doughboys, but talk a little bit about the U.S. Navy in America and the Great War, and also about African Americans at this time, because one of the negative marks about Woodrow Wilson in history that I always keep at the forefront of my mind is how he reverses this 50 years of desegregation, of having African Americans in jobs in the civil service in the South. One of the legacies that we see today is people are able to get those government jobs, are able to go be something like a postmaster. Mm -hmm. That was a huge deal for or people who maybe had been born in slavery themselves, and certainly their ancestors, their grandfather, their parents had been born in slavery around this time. Wilson wipes that out. So I wanted to talk about those two things, about the Navy that are easy to overlook, and also the unique African-American experience in the Great War. Well, I would never overlook the men in the Navy. <laughs> and in this case, it's the men and women in the Navy, because in order to bring the Navy up to strength and to get what needed to be done, done, the Secretary of the Navy found a provision that would allow women to enlist officially in the Navy. They were called yeomanettes, and I believe there were about 20,000 of them by the end of the war, and they didn't serve on board vessels, of course, but they freed men from working as clerks, etc., in the Navy departments and elsewhere, and so that they could go and serve on ships and go overseas for the United States. This was basically a ground war, but the Navy was an extremely important component. We had the fourth largest Navy in the world when the war began, and by the time the war ended, we had been building ships and going about things so industriously that we had emerged at about equal strength with the British Navy, which was the most powerful Navy in the world at that time. And the U.S. Navy at the beginning of the war had war plans that were predicated on certain assumptions that proved not to be correct at all. And they had invested, they were investing most of their money on these huge battleships and super battleships called dreadnoughts. And these are important ships. They remained important all the way through World War II and beyond. But what was, there weren't, these battleships were to fight these set-piece 
naval battles, armada against armada. And there was only real one really huge, important battle of that type during the First World War, and it was before the United States entered. So when we got into the war, we suddenly realized that we needed more destroyers and submarine chasers because this was the first war in which there was organized U-boat warfare. So there was a scramble behind the scenes to get boats, and we not only were building more destroyers, we took some of the money that was earmarked for dreadnoughts and put them into destroyers, but it takes a long time to build ships. So there was the assistant secretary of the Navy in this war was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So he was coming up with as many plans as he could. We were renting yachts to be sub chasers and patrol boats. We were building smaller boats. And we were also sending destroyers and patrol craft to Europe to help to augment the naval strength of our allies. So we had a naval liaison in London, Admiral William Sims, whose papers are here at the library, and he coordinated with the British Navy. We were the prime factor in laying hundreds and hundreds of mines in the North Sea, the North Sea Mine Barrage, it was called. It's a, still a controversial measure, but how much good did it do? But it was mostly American mines that were laid. The American Navy was escorted all the ships that sent doughboys overseas, and American naval personnel were helpful in convincing the Allies to finally institute a convoy system, which they had not done for the first two and a half years of the war. They didn't do it until 1917. And the losses to U-boats plunged because of the convoy system. That's a lesson people learned for World War II. So the Navy is an important player in the book, an important player in the war, but Again, the war for the American experience was mostly a ground warfare. It was building the army. And it was something that drew from all Americans, including, of course, African Americans. And this was a very difficult time for African Americans. It was the time of Jim Crow. It was the time when there were many lynchings, and these continued through the war and in a very, very terrible um, uh, period after when there were race riots and people, including black veterans who had been through combat and had come back, some of them were succumbed to violence when they got back to the United States. So this is one of the major threads that courses through the book, not only sort of touching on what life was like amongst African Americans, not only the question of the segregation of the American federal government, which was protested very vigorously by groups of African Americans who went to the White House, on one occasion so angering President Wilson because of their insistence on fair treatment that he declared at least one of their leaders, William Monroe Trotter, persona non grata, and he didn't want him in the White House ever again. But it's also one 
effect of the war was during the period of neutrality, the United States came out of its Great Recession in part because of orders for war material that we were getting mostly from the Allies for a variety of reasons. And the upsurge in manufacturing put us into the black and made us, by the end of the war, the most powerful economic power on the planet. But we needed workers. The war shut down immigration. It just went to a trickle after the war started. And so not only white workers were coming north to the manufacturing centers, but this stimulated the first great wave of what they call now the Great Migration. African Americans coming from the south into the north, coming into the cities, and in some cases, quadrupling or quintupling the African-American populations in some of the major population and manufacturing centers. And that created tensions as well as opportunities for the African-Americans. It created tensions between African-Americans and whites in the city. So the book details the East St. Louis race riot in 1917, for example. And there was great support once the Americans got into the war in the African-American community for the war effort. But as in among many other groups in the United States, there was a debate that went on. W.E.B. Du Bois was one of the African-American leaders who said, let us support the war effort. People will see that as we support the war effort, as African-Americans had supported American war efforts from the get-go, This will help us achieve our goal of having equal civil rights with all other Americans. And there were other, fewer African-American voices that said, but wait, shouldn't we fight here at home? Shouldn't we make Georgia safe for African-Americans rather than trying to make the world safe for democracy, as Woodrow Wilson famously said in his uh, war declaration speech? So it follows all of these events that take place, and it also follows African-Americans who join the military forces. There were, in fact, two African-American infantry regiments and two African-American cavalry regiments in the United States Army when the war began. They had been long organized. None of them, unfortunately, served overseas, but two African-American combat divisions were organized, and the book follows the very different treatment, both of African-American and white soldiers, and the very different treatment of those two combat divisions, the 92nd, which served under U.S. command and was very shabbily treated and had a very unhappy experience, and the understrength 93rd Division, which served under French command and was repeatedly cited for valor. Now, those were two combat divisions, but the book also does detail that almost all, the vast percentage of African-American men who served in the American military were relegated to jobs as laborers and When they served under American command, they were discriminated against often. And then we follow this. There's an epilogue to the book, and that details some of the 
challenges that America faced and the world faced after the war, but also African Americans. Again, the year 1919 was a particularly bloody one in many respects. There were race riots. And another thread in the book is just the overall striving for American workers of all colors and persuasions and sexes, all of them to get greater rights, a bigger piece of the American pie. At the time the war started, income inequality was a huge question for Americans, as it has become periodically over American history. And the wealthiest 10% of Americans owned 90% of American wealth. And through the war, American workers were accorded greater rights and greater responsibilities. The government supported American workers more. At the end of the war, much of this, much of these rights that American workers thought that they had won were rescinded. And the book sort of goes into the whole labor movement and the difficulties right after the war that labor faced as well. So again, there are many, many stories and many, many voices in this book. And this is one reason that I find this era to be absolutely pivotal. And I also find I'm deeply moved by the eloquence of the people, many of whom I I quoted in the book, as they debate with one another, as they argue with one another, should we go to war? Should we remain at peace? Should we institute a draft? Should we not? How do we pay for the war? Should we send our boys overseas? There's all this wonderful democratic debate going on, quashed, during the actual wartime, often by the suppressions of the Espionage and Sedition Act, but there's still rumblings. You can't keep American people from debating (laughs) entirely, ever. One of the iconic images that you see about a third of the way through America and the Great War does represent that. In a way, it presents readers with a full-paged reproduction of James Montgomery Flagg's iconic Uncle Sam illustration from the Independence Day 1916 cover of Leslie's Weekly. What can you tell us about the role that image plays in this debate? Because you do have it quickly adopted by those who want to use it as saying, Uncle Sam, your uncle wants you. We talked before about having an uncle that served in the war. Well, here you go. This is your Uncle Sam. This is the American (laughs) flag personified here and pointing at you and saying, I want you. I want you to do your bit. So talk about that image a little bit. What do you hope readers get out of it? Well, that is, as you say, an iconic image, and Mr. Flagg actually reportedly served as the model for Uncle Sam in that. And Uncle Sam had been sort of a representative image for the United States for a few decades before that time. But this image, this Uncle Sam, with his very strong face and his very challenging look and his finger pointing right at us saying, you have an obligation. It's up to you to serve. It's up to you to be prepared and representing the United States. This was adopted so quickly. It touched this chord of 
what are my obligations as a citizen? What should I do? What is it to be an American at this time of emergency? And it, I think, helped provoke this great surge of response. I mean, it was part of a huge overall information slash propaganda campaign that was in large part directed by an organization that was set up immediately after we entered the war, the Committee on Public Information. We are now living in an era where information is power. Well, information is always power. Information is important. But also in a time of war, you have to sort of decide what information you cannot share. So this committee that was set up had many different aspects to it, and one was the visual aspect. So they had some of the greatest American artists and American cartoonists doing posters like this one. And Mr. Flagg's Uncle Sam just popped out at people. And um, I think it helped also in this during the war, before the war, shortly after the war, there was an upsurge in, in the the campaign for Americanizing all the millions of immigrants that were in the country. And this campaign was to teach all of the people who were recently arrived in the United States about the Constitution, about their rights, about their obligations, about voting, about what America stood for. And this Uncle Sam sort of helped push along that campaign, I think. And it's still, you know, this is an image that never has died since. Uncle Sam has flags Uncle Sam, or parodies thereof, have turned up on posters ever since then and in many ways right until the present moment. It was just something about the look in that guy's eye, I think. <laughs> Great body language, too. I mean, challenging, yes, but absolutely. challenging, but not threatening. Exactly. It's, it's really something what that draws you. What are you doing? Yep. Yeah. And with the, uh, an air of authority, there's just so much to it. It just shows what a great illustration can do. And you have here the over 250, well over 250 in America and the Great War. I wanted to ask you one last question. You dedicate America and the Great War to your siblings, John, Janet, and Bobby. You mentioned picking up one of your brother's books earlier and how that helped start you here, possibly on this love of researching into the Great War. But you also dedicated to, in your words, those Americans of the World War I generation who kept struggling to build a more just and democratic country, unquote. The Great War generation has passed out of living memory, so I'd like you to make your pitch to readers here in 2017. Those veterans of that war, the civilians who didn't fight but certainly lived through the privations and that flu pandemic, they aren't here to speak to us, but they can through your book. So what would you like readers to finish flipping through, finish reading, looking at the illustrations in America and the Great War that those in the World War I generation are simply not here to tell us that the men and women of wartime a 100 years ago would like to whisper in their ear to their modern counterparts? Well, in some cases, I think the people who lived through this era and who were so eloquent about it, in some instances, like if you're a soldier on the ground, you know what's going on in your area. You're not seeing the overall picture. 
So in some cases, the people who lived through this might not be able to whisper some of the things that I'm hoping the book conveys. And one of those is how the United States truly did emerge as a global power at the end of the war, an economic power and a global player in a way that it had not done before. And one of the great turning points, I think, for this country came during this period and was expressed in a speech that Wilson gave in 1916 before we got into the war, but as we were realizing that we could not remain aloof from world political struggles. The United States has always been involved in the world with um, in commercial interests. We've always in, been engaged in international trade. We've sent our missionaries abroad since we were the United States. But we always wanted to stay out of entangling alliances, and we always wanted to stay out of the squabbles and political quarrels. And that was our idea still as the war began in Europe. In 1916, after he'd engaged in and was still engaged in diplomacy with all the belligerents, and as Americans were realizing that this war, although it's across the Atlantic Ocean, this war is having an effect on our lives, many effects on our lives. Wilson addressed a group, and he said, we are a part of the world, whether we would or not. Everything that affects mankind affects us. And this was a turning point for the American people, and we have never gotten away from that. We did not join the League of Nations at the end of the war for a wide variety of reasons, some of which you will find in the epilogue to the book. But we did work with the League of Nations informally, and we were out there in international diplomacy. And for the first time in history, we had an international disarmament conference in Washington, D.C. So this is one of the things that perhaps some of the people could not whisper to us. But another thing that I think it's important for people to take away, and I think a lot of people who were in the war thought about, was what does it mean to be an American and what are our obligations, both internationally and domestically, and how do we address certain questions? How do we balance domestic and international responsibilities? As we got into the war, this was the beginning or the apex of what we call now the progressive era, which is generally given as the 1890s to the 1920s. And in the United States, the progressive era was trying to address income inequality, the spread of democracy in the United States. As we got into the war, that was 1914 was the first time Americans directly elected United States senators. We had never done that before. So we were looking, we were mostly involved in domestic reforms, in looking at domestic questions. And most of the doughboys who went overseas 
I don't know what percentage, but a hefty percentage of them not only hadn't been abroad ever before, some of them hadn't been out of their states. Many of them hadn't been out of their states. Many of them had not been out of their counties before. They didn't know the world the way they got to know at least that part of it once they came back. They didn't know the rest of the United States before they went to training camps in other parts of the United States. So this was this was a sort of a pivotal point in American history where we awoke to new responsibilities and a new awareness of our place on this tiny little planet that we call home. Well, Margaret E. Wagner, author of America and the Great War, we've reached the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month here when I wrap things up. <laughs> I've enjoyed so much listening to you and enjoying your incredible wealth of knowledge and your passion. You can have that great store of knowledge there at the Library of Congress, but here we have somebody who is bringing it alive and is bringing those people back to speak to us. They had real lives. They lived them. They left so many beautiful writings behind, so much great art, pictures where you can stare at the faces, put yourself in those shoes. Thank you so much for bringing back those images, for letting us hear some of those whispers in their own voices from the World War I generation. I wish you great luck with the book, and I look forward to someday visiting you at the Library of Congress because uh, I am intimidated no more. I fear no, shushing no more. Never I never be intimidated <laughs> by the library. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for your time, and I hope everyone will check out the book and also visit the library. And thank you very much. It was a great joy talking with you. Again, the book is America and the Great War, a Library of Congress Illustrated History. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. We take it Amazon and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Margaret E. Wagner for joining us and compiling so many vivid images of the United States during the Great War period. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our chat with Kevin C. Fitzpatrick about his book, World War I New York. You can also browse our World War I section at historyauthor.com for other great chats about the period, including Letters from the Trenches by Jacqueline Wadsworth over in the UK and Nine Innings for the King by Jim Leake, as well as Jim's latest book, From the Dugouts to the Trenches. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, we leave you with the full version of our theme song, Dixie Coates singing New York Ain't New York Anymore. 
describing the changed Gotham that greeted the Doughboys when they returned home from America's first major international conflict. Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Standing alone, I saw Georgie Cohn somewhere on Long Acre Square. Crowds passed him by, I heard Georgie sigh, nobody noticed him there. I asked him why he didn't smile, he said in that old Cohen style, Oh, New York ain't New York anymore, how I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. I remember, he said, when I first hit Broadway, New York was New York and the white way was gay. There were Sherry's and Murray's and Rector's, you know, the Claridge and Churchill's and Delmonico. Music and laughter, the prices were right. A ten dollar bill meant a wonderful night. And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared When the newsboys yelled extra, war is declared But the hand that held glasses of wine in the air Were the first to hold guns when I rode over there The boys won the war and came home from the fight The last night on Broadway was almost his night but ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Anymore. Yeah, they wouldn't take it until I threw in a set of dishes.